that was a song that I've now skipped. Dreams by the Cranberries. You are listening to 106.9 Tune FM with The Takeover. And we're back. I'm Christina. I'm a lecturer here in sociology and I'm also running a feminist reading group. And we have decided that today, uh, International Women's Day, we were going to take over Tune, U- Tune FM radio to talk about women's stuff. Uh, women and non- non-binary folk, I should say. Which, um, So, you know, everyone who's against the patriarchy. Um, but I'm here. I'm here with my next guest, Danielle Davis. Who's Hi, Christina. How are you going? Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming into the studio today. Um, we're really happy to have you. So Danielle is um, a friend and colleague of mine here at UNE, and she's had tenured lectureships at the University of New South Wales and the University of Technology Queensland, and she's a research fellow here at the University, <coughs> excuse me, the University of New England in Australia. Um, and you've also just edited a book that's about to come out. Is that right, Danielle? Yeah, yeah. It's actually out in some parts, but it doesn't officially come out until the 19th. Oh, okay, yeah. so it's like a so- it's been soft launched? Could, I don't know. People have got it and I haven't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like friends it of seems mine upside the, down. Yeah, friends of mine in the States have already got it, um, but I, I don't get mine until the 20th. But the official, the official launch is the 19th or the 20th, I think. Yeah, right. Well, congratulations. It's called Black Existentialism, Essays on the, tr- Essays on the Transformative Thought of Lewis R. Gordon, um, edited by Danielle Davis. And it's part of the Global Critical Caribbean, Caribbean Thought Series. Uh, published by Roman and Littlefield. Can you tell us a little bit about, well, first of all, can you maybe tell us a little bit about um, Lewis R. Gordon? Uh, Lewis Gordon's, uh, um, I guess you could call him a world philosopher, but um, one of his specialities is black existentialism and um, the work of Fanon. And um, I just came across him through reading Fanon in 2003, I think it was, and just came across his work in connection with, just in the library. Mm And we invited him out to a conference in Australia and he came out and his his work is, um, I think he's probably one of the most important philosophers in the world today. Um, and I think that's why his large body of work, even though he's only 55, um, deserved, I think, um, a, a book about his ab- about his work because his oeuvre is so huge now. He's, he's published about 14 books or something like that. Wow. Yeah, so he's... Um, um, he covers a lot of, of area that um, you know a lot of people are interested in, but that's in particularly important to people who are interested in ideas about justice, ideas about um, how your body's lived in the world and how it's unjustly treated, and everything that stems from that. So structural racism, um, all those kinds of things, but also epistemic violence and yeah. Yeah, right. Can you can you say a little bit more about about black existentialism as a as a concept or a, a, a frame? What of do you think it might mean? Oh dear. I was I always thought I was in the in the rather comfy position of asking <laughs> other people questions. <laughs> no, I guess I asked that question because part of Lewis's work and, and Fanon and all of that that wonderful tradition of, of of black thought and human thought is that why would you ask what black existentialism sort of meant when you kind of might know what existentialism is? So it's it's about I guess it's it's about challenging the idea about um, what philosophy is, for example, but also how a black experience is not just something that is a narration or a biography, but it's actually a rigorous enga- engagement with our existence in the world and <coughs> excuse me, our existence in the world, both as people of colour but also obviously black people as well, um, and how we engage with that and 
what what the kinds of things that our experiences actually are and so it's that theorization of that rather than I'm just going to give you my narrative or my biography I'm actually going to interrogate um, coloniality I'm actually going to interrogate whiteness and all these kinds of things that people don't often think is associated with black existentialism when you know it has to be yeah yeah no of course I can definitely see that um but it's all about it's also about it's not just about a critique it's because that would be you know pretty you know um reductive I guess Um, that you're only criticizing um, yeah but it's it's about honoring um the the epistemic histories of of black folk all over the world and I think that's the part that's incredibly important most important so it's about decolonizing knowledge it's about um, looking at philosophies, for example, from Africa that go back thousands of years. It's those kinds of things in Australia. It's those kinds of things that um, epistemologies in colonisation have been um, really underplayed or actually not acknowledged at all. So it's about, well, this is actually an intellectual engagement of, of thought. And it's about the experience of black people that we're now theorising about. Yeah. yeah, great. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I guess um, maybe I should have broken up my question into two parts because I think some of our listeners maybe don't understand what existentialism is either. Oh, sure. In a kind of a philosophical sense. I mean, I have... I'm I'm not a philosopher either, so I haven't studied existentialism. You know, oh, some, no, that's, yeah, some sure. words have technical yeah. terms and other Sorry, terms. Sorry, I'm in my own head at the moment. No, Sorry. no, that's okay. Um, well, I just to, think existentialism is just a study of existence. Yeah, yeah. so for me, um, for me, I sort of... I mean, the, the work that I've done in a similar perhaps a similar space is work on embodiment yeah no embodiment's a huge part of existentialism. yeah particularly black existentialism because it's often the black body that's under attack that's a sign of danger um that is da- it's not just a sign of danger it's not a signifier but it actually is dangerous, actually is in, dangerous itself, in itself which is what gordon yeah. argues and fanon argues yeah 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 right so that's i mean that's where i've come from at embodiment as a kind of yeah. a, um not so much from formal philosophy, but I guess coming in from that sort of cultural theory or yeah. um, you know sociological perspective. Well, they just stole it off philosophy anyway. So. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, no, my my theory is that most good things were stolen from history, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's probably not a very popular view here at UNE. No, lots no, of different I wouldn't have thought so. No. <laughs> Um, well, thanks for that. No, that, that's um, that's really interesting. Sorry, that was an assumptive thing. I shouldn't have assumed. No, that, not at yeah. all. It's great to get academics into the studio because I think um, one of the great things about about Tune and about the takeover is, um, you know, making space for completely different kinds of mm. um, kinds yeah. of politics and kinds of thought. So um, it's great. And in the next hour, actually, um, or it, um, after this segment, we're going to be talking with Felicity and Sarah. Both of whom are going to be talking about philosophy and and Felicity's work actually is also on existentialism. Oh, so great. Um, it actually, I think. Um, I didn't. I mean, I did plan the day, but I didn't actually plan it that well. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm really glad that these well. complimentary sessions are, um, yeah, next to each other, which is great. Um, the other thing that I'm one of my projects um, here at UNE at the moment is talking about um, developing a gender major in the sociology degree. Mm. Um, and I w- was wondering what you, you know, I've been having a lot of interesting conversations with the people about what that what the gender major would include and, and mm. you know how how it would work. And I guess there are larger questions here about um, how do we study bodies, yeah. you know, in um, in academic settings and in in theoretical settings. Yeah. Um, and I think obviously black existentialism um, is a real um, kind of critical motivation. I guess to do that, you know, it gives us a lot of tools and a lot of um, uh, a lot of strategies to kind of engage with canonical. Um, 
you know, canonical philosophy and yeah. canonical sociology as well. Yeah, well, all mm. well, all yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. all canons, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think it's a great avenue for it. I, th- I think the major is a great idea. Um, I've been watching the sort of emails go around and the suggestions of what people are reading, and um, it's kind of interesting that um, that there's st- there's still a really a dominance of thought. I think when people think of gender studies, there's still a, I think a dominance of thought of feminism. And which is not really gender studies, but it's a part of it and a really important part of it. Yeah, definitely. But I also think um, it's a little bit sad when um, you see, uh, I guess, uh, feminism or gender studies seen as a, a form of whiteness as well. And I think that would be something as as organising the major or being part of the major, which you've sort of obviously been doing. I, I'd, I'd suggest that that really needs to be, um, you know, I guess, ensured that that doesn't happen yeah that you don't get students coming away thinking this is about it's all about about susan brown miller and it's all about yeah um, it's all about american feminism and yeah 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 that's that i was was good i saw on your um program today that you've got people coming in talking about intersectionality early but also transgenderism which is part of the work that i do as well yeah um so um you know, that's, that would be a great part of... Because I used to teach a, a course at UNSW in, in gender studies, which was indigeneity and, and gender. And when I came to the course, a lot of it was about feminism and it sort of had to be rewritten because there's all these different intersubjectivities about gender, um, you know, that are incredibly important to what you would want to be doing in a major as well. Not, oh yeah. No, 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 yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I think um, what was really interesting for me about starting the conversation about having a major, and, I'm, you know, this mm. is all very, in the very early stages, I should point out, um, <laughs> But what we're, you know, what I really wanted to do, and, and like the radio takeover today, is to make a space. Mm. It's not about. Um, I don't have a whole a whole course planned out in my yeah, head about, you know, yeah. the, the whole, you know, every every subject that students should be doing. But what mm. I wanted to do was make a space where I could say, look, um, didn't you always want to write, you know, hey Danielle, didn't you always want to write a course on, no. you know, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> for instance, um, as a hypothetical, or you know, there's a space here for an upper level unit. Yeah. On, um, I think that's a know. great idea. The idea of that you've created a space to in which to talk about it, because it's. I mean, it's it's disappointing that there's not one here already. I mean, I know gender studies is under attack all over. Yeah, well, I think Flinders. Um, the, well, I, I'm going to maybe misspeak, but I think they have a, they had a women's studies department mm. that's currently in the process of being actively um, yeah. attacked. Um, and downsized and you know um, the major I think is being is uh, I won't say any more about it I don't know enough about it but yeah yeah, there's a lot of things going on at Flinders and at other universities where um, women yeah um, studies that deal with women and studies that deal with gender are um, being marginalized in some way or being dismissed well there's yeah you can do it for example you used to be able to do a a gender major in um, at UNSW but there's no gender studies there as such you we just come from philosophy or we come from indigenous studies and history and so everyone comes from a a department there's no actual gender studies and that's not necessarily a problem but it is when you want to scaffold units and you want them to be quite yeah to speak to each other yeah exactly kind of body of knowledge yeah yeah exactly it's interesting you say that because i think um you know for me being an interdisciplinary scholar myself Mm. i mean i've come from um, my undergrad was in um, early modern European history <laughs> and English critical theory, oh, that's right? right? English literature and critical theory. No, that's good. Um, and I'll tell you all about that right after this short break. Lovely. No worries. You're going to be listening to Wake Up by Mad Season. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM.
you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Back on with The Takeover. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Takeover. It's Christina, who's from Sociology at UNE, and I'm here with two more of my colleagues. Um, Felicity, who's joining us again, um, who was here previously for the um, uh, Caring and Work um, chat that we had earlier with uh, Richard and Joanna. And um, we're also joined by um, Sarah Lawrence, who's here in classics and ancient history. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do, Sarah? Absolutely. So I spend a lot of my time teaching Latin, which obviously all the cool kids do. Um, it's well known. very cool. Very cool. <laughs> I'm not that cool. <laughs> but you could be, Christina. You could be. <laughs> so, Maybe. Yeah. So I teach Latin. I teach uh, Roman history. I've got a new course starting this year on how to be good, Greek and Roman ethics. And I research a lot about how Romans saw the world in terms of how they felt about issues like cruelty or pity or um, people from other countries. So just trying to get inside their heads. Yeah, wow, thank you. That sounds fascinating. Mm. It's a really good um, segue from from my chats with Danielle Davis just now because I think because Danielle and I were talking a lot about the body and the way that um, different kinds of disciplines, I guess, engage with the body and engage with bodily experience and, and how, how our bodies influence our identities and identity formation as well. Um, which, Felicity, I think is something that you know quite a lot about because I think you work on existentialism, is that right? Yes. Um, yeah, I'm interested in uh, phenomenology and existentialism. Um, the tradition of phenomenology in the 20th century puts a lot of emphasis on talking about what it is like to have experiences, so describing you know, that existence um, in its kind of immediacy and, and trying to kind of um, extract out maybe the structures of that experience as well. And because of that, um, embodiment becomes important because bodies are so much part of our experience. Um, and it's not a, a coincidence that feminists get very interested in phenomenology and existentialism, particularly because of that focus on the body um, and being able to describe uh, women's experiences that just haven't been described properly before in the history of philosophy. So this is happening like mid-20th century, um, although um, kind of early phenomenology is happening uh, at the beginning of that century. and. Um, and since then, there's really been an explosion of great feminist scholarship about embodiment and you know what it's like to live in the world as an embodied being, which I think has been neglected <laughs> because of the male dominance of philosophy. So why history. do you think? Why why don't you think? I mean, men have bodies, right? That's what they tell me. Yeah, <laughs> but so but I'm really interested in this because I think I mean I come across it in my work as well, where mm. um, you know where we talk about sort of um, citizenship. Or you know particular mm. kinds of roles that we play in in society and in our families, um, and it it seems as though so many of these roles are disembodied. You know that people Absolutely. are expected to, um, you know, so this idea that you know you, you could walk down the road to vote, but actually you're in a wheelchair, or mm. you can't leave your your the person you're caring for because they're too infirm, or. Yeah. Um, you would go, but you have six children and you can't bring them all down to the polling station with you, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so they're really kind of material, you know, grounded mm. sort of logistical problems that people have. Yes. And I'm wondering why men or male philosophers or the male canon, um, you know, have they just been so untroubled by these logistics that that they haven't, you know, mm. that they don't, they don't, mm. they're not evidenced in their philosophy or? Well, I think one of the reasons is um, 
a traditional focus in philosophy on reason or the work of the mind or the, the operations of the mind. Uh, and Genevieve Lloyd, who's an Australian philosopher, wrote a famous and very influential book called The Man of Reason. And she details carefully as she goes through the history of philosophy how men seem to make this distinction between reason and everything else, reason and emotion, reason and the body. And guess who gets identified with uh, non-reason? Yes. Women. And so... I think there is this this trend that's just went for centuries, where um, yeah the 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 mind was privileged um, or prioritised above the body, and men, for biological reasons as well, I think were able to distance themselves from uh, being immersed in the body or being um, mired, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, and having to respond to the needs of the body so much. So you get this image of the philosopher as male, white, um, on his own, no family ties, um, and women are sort of earthy, engaged in the in the world, but somehow lesser. So I think that's you know that's the root of the problem. And yeah, right. Feminist so philosophy sort of is trying mind. to yeah trying to overcome that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Fantastic. I think you you absolutely see that in the ancient world as well in yes. philosophy. This idea that the mind is everything, and anything that's connected to the body is. Uh, lesser, it's immoral, it's a bit disgusting. Yes. And this gets kind of brought to light in stories that Socrates, for instance, is really impressive because he can stand still on one spot without moving for hours. <laughs> and he doesn't is that, need is that to, impressive? It's very impressive <laughs> because he doesn't need to drink water or eat or move. Oh, right. And so his body is completely under his control. Mm. Wow. There's a famous story related to that of... Um, Socrates thinking about some high thoughts, walking along and not looking where he's going and he falls into a hole and he gets his clothes all dirty and he go, comes back home and his washerwoman has to wash his clothes and she says, look, you need to you know, stop having your head in the clouds, look around where you're going so you don't fall into a hole. But perhaps that <laughs> illustrates this um, distinction between this kind of disembodied kind of thinking and that sort of more practical um, perspective that women are <laughs> presenting. Look, there's, there's possibly a reason why um, Socrates' wife was famously, historically considered to be extremely bad-tempered. <laughs> Living with Socrates couldn't have been easy. <laughs> so maybe, I mean, maybe if we all had washerwomen, yeah, we yes. wouldn't mind that we were falling in holes all the time. Yes. Well, um, that was the theme of Stravinsky's Lunch mm. by Drusilla Majeska, another great Australian writer um, and and she wrote about this idea of the great man and so for instance Stravinsky the composer um, apparently demanded that his wife and children sit in total silence at the dinner table and let him you know concentrate on his composing um, and the idea that you know we'd all achieve great things if we had this family around us to just kind of at our beck and call you know but that's not the reality for non-men <laughs> for women and others i'm so glad you mentioned that book felicity actually that had a, a huge impact on me i read it when i was about yes. 20 mm. and the way that she contrasts that with the experience of female artists needing to fit this around everything else yeah. in life the other demands on them that's right caring housework yeah. and so on and then those women who um you know who are reported as abandoning their children or you know mm. she was a great author but you know what terrible mother <laughs> Um, you know, but that you double never, standard. Yeah, you yeah. never have that. Or you know, like how selfish was it of her to mm. you know go into the Alps to write for a year and yeah, leave exactly. her infant child? Yeah, and, you know. So all these kinds of tropes around um, this sort of um, denial of women's agency to kind mm. of you know choose between their obligations, mm. or or also, and I, and I think um, we didn't. I didn't bring this up, Alex. Um, 
Uh, we we were talking about some of the other cool things, but I think there's also that kind of um, this business of you know mothering as being something that's um, always fantastic. You know yes. that women want to be mothers, and mm. that being a mother is always rewarding, and it should mm. be a, you know it, it, it mm. shouldn't can be your only reward or the mm. best kind of reward that you can mm. have. Mm. Um, and so there's no reason for women to ever seek out anything else. Yeah, that, and that if you well, if you do yeah. seek it out, perhaps there's something, something, wrong, something wrong with you. Exactly. You know, yeah. 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 It's your <laughs> fault. Right. Yeah. On that note, I, I was actually really interested, Felicity. What made you study philosophy to begin with? How did you get into this? <laughs> well, I actually fell. Uh, actually, sort of fell into it. So I was at ANU um, doing art science, and um, I was actually interested on the art side. I was interested in musicology, um, history and theory of music, and I just needed another unit <laughs> and so I thought oh philosophy looks interesting yeah why not um, and I was I got into it and I was hooked and I ended up um, just converting to a plain arts degree and going on to do honours and and sort of all went from there um, but uh, one thing that excited me was that in the um, history of philosophy pretty comprehensive history of philosophy course that I did um, there was one philosopher uh, 20th century philosopher G.M. Anscombe um, it was common for philosophers then to just kind of go by their initials. And I was very excited to find out her name was actually was a her and her name was Gertrude Elizabeth Margaret Anscombe. So that, you know, is inspiring when you see a woman philosopher. No worries. Um, and more of that, I assume, after the break. Yes, please. Awesome. Uh, coming up next, we have the full of No Woman, No Cry by the Fugees. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. A dedication to all the refugees worldwide. Uh, one time. And you're listening to 106.9 Tune FM, back with The Takeover. Hi, I'm Christina and I'm back here with Sarah and Felicity and we're talking about women in philosophy. And Felicity, just before the break, you were talking about one of your seminal experiences, I think, with reading philosophy. Yes, yeah. Um, I just found out, I'd found out that um, a philosopher we'd been studying was actually a woman, which is rare <laughs> um, when you're doing undergraduate philosophy, um, particularly sort of those kind of history of Western philosophy type courses. Um, and it's interesting because the empirical research shows that when female students are exposed to women philosophers, either in you know teaching them directly or just having readings, you know, um, it actually increases um, the likelihood of them going on to do postgrad. Yeah, wow. So when people see themselves yeah. in the in the the material that they're studying, they're more engaged. Is that because yeah. they're more engaged, or they feel they're represented? Yeah, it's like they actually. Um, I mean, I've seen a bit of the empirical research, and yeah, um, the interviewees sort of say, "I can, I can see myself, you know, maybe doing this." Um, so it kind of challenges that stereotype type people have of the male philosopher you know with a beard and everything um and but it's it's worth um, making the point that this is something male students tend to take for granted that they they see themselves in everything they, they study and that's not the case for female um, students at university a lot of the time we don't see you know when we're doing um historical studies we just don't see ourselves and um i think um, related to that there's a real effort these days to kind of um, the word I, I saw used recently was retrieve, retrieve uh, women philosophers from um, where they've been kind of forgotten and overlooked. Um, so there aren't that many, but there's more than we thought. 
And yes, I think, I think there's all, that's yeah. always true, isn't it? Yeah, there's always more yeah. than we visually. Than yeah, we I grew up thinking, oh, there's hardly any. And now yeah. I, I'm kind of coming to the view that actually there were a lot more than we thought. And um, there's really exciting work being done um, uncovering women philosophers. And I, I want to uh, mention a book um, that's actually available through the university library. So if anyone's listening and is a student or staff, you can actually access this as an online book. It's called Eight Women Philosophers by Jane Duran from 2006. Um and um, it includes, you know, a couple of famous people like Mary Wollstonecraft and Simone de Beauvoir, but also um, a whole lot of people you may not have heard of, such as Anne Conway, Mary Astle, um, Edith Stein, Simone Weil. So well worth having a look at. And I also want to mention um, there's a blog online called the Feminist uh, Philosophers Blog. Um, news that uh, I think the the byline is, you know, news that feminists can use, and it basically kind of keeps you up to date on what's happening in the world of feminist philosophy or feminist interests um, in philosophy and about campaigns to kind of retrieve some of these women philosophers. So um, it's a it's a WordPress blog. So if you just Google um, feministphilosophers.wordpress, it'll come up. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much. Sarah, do you have any final words for us on women in the ancient world or studying women in the ancient world? Well, I just think um, one of the, the really interesting things that, that has come out when Felicity and I've been talking about this is that there are certain philosophers in the ancient world who recognised that women were philosophical creatures. Yes. So the one who really stands out for me is a philosopher called Musonius Rufus, who who writes and spoke about the fact that women needed to be educated just as much as men. And his point is, if we're going to make it important to know about virtue and to be a good person, why on earth would we exclude women from that? And he goes on to say, because you're always, when you study the ancient world, you're always waiting for the but <laughs> when in this kind of experience. And I thought I'd found it when he said... Obviously, I wouldn't encourage them to go on and become sort of intense philosophical <laughs> scholars. And I thought, oh, and he said, but I wouldn't recommend that for men either. Oh, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's kind of amazing that this mm. was around in the first century mm. CE mm. and then gets forgotten. Yeah, and I think things went backwards. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's, yeah, that's a very important lesson about. And it's also, I think it's interesting, you know, like that, especially when we, you know, the, the further we go back in time, I think it's, um, Maybe it's a mistake of our progressive or sort of our immediate, the immediacy of our culture that we always think that now is the most progressive we've ever mm. been. So mm. it's always interesting to know that, the, you know, or to remind, it's, it's, it's important to remind ourselves that we've always had, you know, strong women philosophers and really yes. smart, articulate women. And also that, um, you know, that we've had good male allies maybe is, yes. is the other mm. key point. And that there, yeah. you know, there have been politics and, um, you know, philosophies developed that, that are kind of much more inclusive than perhaps we would have assumed. Yeah, um, it's encouraging, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, and a little bit frustrating that we lost it along the yes. way. But we can always retrieve it. Retrieve again, it. Right? Let's retrieve. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming in to speak to us today, Sarah and Felicity. It's been a pleasure having you in the You're studio. Welcome. And Sarah, we'll welcome you back later to speak with Megan about what are we talking about? Women in the ancient world. Women in the ancient world. So it's going to be a whole oh. segment on ancient Rome and Masonius um, Rufus and a whole bunch of other cool cats. Yeah, well, I know I certainly can't wait. Uh, come up, coming up next, we have "Get Up, Stand Up" by Bob Marley and the Whalers. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the Takeover. This is um, Christina from the Sociology Department here at UNE. Um, and I also run the Feminist Reading Group, which is uh, doing a takeover of Tune FM for International Women's Day. And we're here with a really great friend of mine, Ruby, uh, Ruby Mountfoot, who is a dynamic and energetic radio host, keynote speaker and community leader. She serves as the president and chairperson of the Melbourne Bisexual Network, or the MBN for short. 
And Ruby also produces and hosts Joy Radio's Bi Plus community show and podcast called Triple Bypass um, and is administrator of the Bi Community Melbourne Facebook group. Uh, they also sit on the Autism Spectrum Australia's Aspect LGBTQA Plus Advisory Committee and they're an alumni of Leadership Victoria's LGBTI Emerging Leaders and Autism CRC's Future Leaders Programs. Goodness me, Ruby, you're busy. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's really great to have you on the program. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Christine. Oh, I'm really glad we could work it out so that you could come and talk to us. So it seems like you're wearing, you wear a lot of hats, um, you know, as, as an advocate for BIPLUS community, but then also um, on the Autism Spectrum Australia's Advisory Committee. Can you maybe tell us a bit mm. about how you came to do both of those things? Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, as you said, wear a lot of hats. I think, like, all people have a lot of different aspects of personality. It's just the ones that kind of you get drawn into, have to defend a lot and advocate for. I um, I was only diagnosed um, with autism spectrum disorder about two and a half years ago, and I hadn't really thought much about um, that part of myself. I, I dealt with a lot of kind of internalized uh, shame around around that label, much like I did with my bi label. But because I was, over the last few years, I started to do a lot more advocacy in the bi uh, plus space, I would mention that I was autistic and that I had ADHD because I would feel that was an important representation to have for people. And through then, it kind of started to lead towards people really connecting with that, particularly a lot of women who uh, are often diagnosed way later with things like autism and ADHD because all the diagnostics have been based on white male um, behavior. So oh, we wow. often flip through the cracks there. Yeah, and that can lead to a lot of mental health issues. Um, and when you don't get diagnosed, you just kind of go through cycles of, of failing, basically, or to live up to the expectations that neurotypical or non-autistic, non-ADHD people um, are setting for you. And so I, I guess I, I kind of fell into that. And also I realized that um, in the LGBTI uh, QA plus community, there are a lot of autistic people where I'm significantly more likely to identify as LGBT, um, so trans um, or, sex, uh, or have a sexuality that's not heterosexual. Um, I think between 30 to 80% of us identify as something other than straight. So it's a pretty significant overlap. But that's I a hugely really significant any... overlap. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize um, that at all. Yeah, and particularly I think with um, the transgender diverse uh, uh, population, so they do think about 30 to 40% of autistic people identify as gender diverse, um, and yet they, you don't really see that being addressed, and they can, it can cause a lot of problems, particularly when um, a lot of autistic uh, service providers don't have any awareness, because a lot of autistic services have been based around the below 18, um, 18 age gap, um, and so as we've you know, experience over the last few years, uh, people have a lot of uh, issues with discussing um, non-heterosexual, non-cisgenders uh, and sexualities with, with children. Um, and yes. so that, that's a huge block there. And also it can create a lot of barriers for people who are transgender diverse and want to have that identity affirmed uh, when autism is kind of used for this reason. Oh, well, you're not actually trans, you're not actually gender diverse, you just have a special interest or we know what's best for you because you're autistic and you can't really think clearly. So, and so it became a really important thing to talk about and to get involved with. And then I was really lucky to know um, another incredible uh, non-binary or um, autistic uh, bisexual advocate here in Melbourne who kind of started to put these opportunities in front of me. And I often would apply for them not really thinking that I was autistic enough. And um, I'm quite on the uh, low support needs end of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, uh, being able to do the leadership program and then sit on the uh, aspect LGBTI advisory committee has really been fantastic even though it can be quite intense just to kind of be again confronted with just how much work there often is to do in education in that space 
Yeah. Wow. So thank you. Thank you for that. So it's it sounds like I mean. Um, um, bisexuality is also something that that you that you mentioned, Carrie. I mean, your your bisexual <laughs> identity actually um, mm. was a was a space where you felt quite a lot of shame or erasure, perhaps. Or can you talk a little bit more oh, about yeah. um, identifying <laughs> as bisexual and and yeah, how you experienced that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, that, you know, my identity is how I got to meet you. So you know, it's, <laughs> it's put a lot of positivity into my life. Um, but it, it took a long time. I um I came out as bi publicly when I was around seventeen at school. Um, and I had a I had a partner um, then, and that kind of made it a lot easier because I didn't really feel like I should have to come out because I'd had you know strong feelings for for boys, and so my feelings for a girl didn't feel different. So it was kind of I knew it was going to be treated differently, but it didn't that didn't really seem fair. So my attitude was I'm just going to go forward, and this is just normal, and everyone can deal with it. Um, and the issue was that when that relationship ended. Um, I was suddenly confronted with just the extent of bi-erasure and biphobia in the in the LGBTIQ plus community um, that, you know, I was being told that lesbians wouldn't date bi women. And so once I didn't have a, a femme-presenting partner, it no longer felt like I could access on any of those spaces. And then that got, that it became a really big issue because uh, when I started seeing another woman when I was 19 and I was also seeing a psychologist, um, the psychologist actually told me that I wasn't actually bisexual. I was just straight and really wanted attention. Wow. That's an appalling thing to say to anybody. Especially from a mental health perspective. And unfortunately, it's really common um, because um, good old uh, Sigmund Freud had equated bisexuality with with anxiety and confusion. So it was seen as this confused state. And I think that unfortunately has really seeped through into a lot of our diagnostics. which also might explain why people are much less likely to disclose their identity to um, therapeutic service providers and um, medical service providers. Well, especially but, because... Um, oh, sorry. Until, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was just going to say, especially because, mm. um, you know, I think a lot of the, a lot of the strength of, of the LGB... Well, yeah, strength of parts of the, of the LGBTQIA plus community is in finding validation in your identity in those spaces, right? So even if you don't find validation in um, health, you know, health settings or institutional settings... Um, you know, you have a community who tells you you're valued and that, you know, that your love is valid and your body is valid. Um, but when you don't have that kind of community to fall back on, I think um, pushing back in health service contexts where you already feel very vulnerable can be even more challenging. Mm. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there was also this pressure I felt to affirm my bisexual identity, which meant that I was, you know, um, the, pers- the woman I was dating at the time, I, you know, I really liked her as a friend, but I just wasn't sexually attracted to her. But that was kind of fed into my own, you know, that what everything I've been told that you know bisexual women were always going to choose men, that it was just a phase of experimentation. And even though I'd had such strong romantic feelings for a woman beforehand, because I didn't feel it in this context, it was creating a lot of insecurity already. And so that kind of was fed into by the therapist. I kind of it took me a long time to kind of actually feel confident in that enough, so I'd feel quite confused. Um, and I did think, I, and I did think I was just a straight, confused person. Even though, of course, that actual con- the fact that there was confusion at all is a pretty good indicator that I wasn't straight. Yes, um, of course. But it wasn't really, and um, and so even when I started to be, I get back confident again and being, no, I definitely am bisexual. Um, I definitely don't just like boys um, or men. By that point, it really wasn't until I started doing. Um, working around uh, Joy 94.9 so that's the LGBTI community radio station that's based in Melbourne and um, 
I just started to, I started as a um, current affairs presenter there mostly because I they weren't it was still the gay and lesbian radio stations but they were asking for bisexual people and one of my friends who was a lesbian was like you should you should go on there you should talk about your stuff too if you're not seeing any representation someone's got to be the first person and so um, I just happened to join at the same time where they were actually looking to start the first bi plus um, show and that was actually a gay man had been campaigning that for about five years. And they finally, he finally had a team to put together for that. And so it was when I was sitting in a room with two other bi people with basically a requirement to talk about bisexuality that I realized I'd never really had that before. Yeah. And so suddenly we were just talking. And the first few episodes of our show was just building excitement as we all just kind of realized all of our experiences were shared and that we had that sense of affirmation that, no, we weren't being too sensitive. We weren't experiencing these things in, in isolation. These were problems we were all facing. And that... That became a really big thing, particularly as after a few months in, they thought there was a woman in Tasmania who was doing a, a huge survey for bi and pan people uh, about mental health. And it was through researching that that I found out that bi plus people actually have significantly worse mental health outcomes than gay people and straight people. And that just went against so much of all the messages I had absorbed, you know, that yeah, it's not well, that, that bad kind of for us, we're only half pass. gay. Yeah. yeah, that you can, well, that, yeah. that sort of passing, so-called passing privilege where you don't need to come out to people. Yeah, yeah and you can just, you can exactly. just bring your boyfriends to family dinner and no one will ever, it needs to find out that you're bi. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're only half gay, so we only experience <laughs> things like at half strength or half the time, as opposed to actually being much worse. And I think that was a big turning point for both me and Anthony, who was my co-host and who would go on to found Melbourne Bisexual Network, which I'm now uh, serving as president of, because... We realized that there was a whole number of compounding issues there was that we didn't have specific community spaces for us or we felt comfortable in bringing partners of any gender. We didn't really feel that we could, we didn't disclose, like we were finding out that bi people were much less likely to disclose to service providers what their, um, their sexuality just because of that fear of discrimination, which unfortunately was a very valid fear. You know, we were finding out that we, we were less involved in community. We were less involved uh, and it wasn't, uh, we were less involved in like meeting each other and connecting and it wasn't just even coming out didn't help and I think that was what was really really important to understand was that you know we say it gets better but when you're bi or pan coming out doesn't actually necessarily make things easier for you um and it's also it can that, make you know and so if you don't have mm. sorry sorry interrupt Ruby I just wanted to say but it's also part of that <laughs> issue of um you know uh, a lot of people talk about coming out, however that you know whatever identity they're coming out about, or you know in relation to, mm. that they have to come out over and over again. That you know you don't you don't. Yeah. It's not just this huge party and everyone in the world understands your identity now, and um, yeah. you know you can move forward on that basis. It's like every time you start a new job, every time you're in a new community, when you start mm. university for a lot of our students here, you know they're on campus for the first time. Um, you know, a lot of yeah. first years, a lot of people who've never been to university before or are the first in their family to go to university. And then to also be struggling mm. or, you know, just struggling, you know, to, to figure out maybe what you want, how you want to identify and what you want to come, you know, yeah. maybe you feel like somehow you need to come out about something or that the way that people are reading you isn't isn't the full, you know, the full you. Um, but even finding the words well, to that, figure that, out that, what that, that, that is. That's where the benefit, yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry. exactly. And I think as well, the issue with a lot of queer spaces or LGBTIQA spaces is that, the issue with, so the reason people who are not heterosexual have to come out all the time is like heterosexism in that we're all straight until we prove otherwise. The problem is that once you move into spaces that are for the LGBTIQA plus community, there's a thing, so monosexual is a term that I use to uh, describe someone who's attracted to one gender 
And then there's something called monosexism, which is that everyone is a single gender attracted until proven otherwise. So we have to come out in straight spaces. We've got to come out in gay spaces. We've got to come out on dates, which is a very unique situation because often people can assume that sexuality is a given when you're on a date with somebody. Um, and so all those kind of compounding stresses. And as you mentioned, people thinking they know who you are, which is why I find I can understand the logic behind assuming that there is a, like there is a privilege to being passed as to being read as a straight person. However, there's a difference between privilege and benefit. There are benefits to being read as straight in that I'm at less risk of, on, like being, um, of experiencing violence on the street from someone seeing me, unless I'm with a femme-presenting person, and then, you know, I'm, then I can, I'm at much as risk of experiencing homophobia as a lesbian couple would be. But it can just kind of get compounded because we never really feel comfortable anywhere because it's that sense of everyone here is assuming something about me, and if I tell them that they're wrong, then I will, it will change their attitudes towards me and I have to balance that risk at all times. And particularly, I think, when that happens also in those spaces that are made to be welcoming for us. And I think that's been something that we've seen in studies around our mental health is that often BIPOC people go into LGBTI spaces assuming that they will be included and welcomed because we're in the acronym. Yeah, right at the front. And that is very... (laughs) Right in the front. (laughs) And unfortunately, that is not often the case. Um, So that often can come with a sense of shock and fail. And well, I think it's also because we'll the queer community cases. talk about community so much, you know, and that there's so much strength in that yeah. community. And there is, you know, when you yeah. when you have access to it. And I think, one, I mean, one of the statistics that was um, uh, really pertinent for me was that, um, you know, lesbian women, women who identify as lesbians, moving from the country to the city, improve, have, you know, often experience improvements in their mental health, right, because they find community. Yeah. Um, well, that's one of the reasons that they, their mental health is attributed as um, improving. Mm. But when bi women move to the city, there's no change. So it's really in interesting. Fact, it can get worse. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, or, or it declines. Um, so yeah. it's really interesting to look yeah. at, you know, to, to sort of, um, I guess, really centre the kind of the importance of community and building your own community as well. I mean, I think, which is something that you're doing with the um, the BiPlus Network in Melbourne, and I know there's one starting, um, Andal- um, sorry, Amber Loomis has started one in Sydney. They're both on Facebook, so you can yeah. look them up if that's something that you think you might be interested in. We're going to have to leave it there, Ruby. Um Thank you so much for coming into the station. Well, calling in, I should say, to the station to talk to us today. It was fantastic <laughs> to get you on the phone. Oh, it was wonderful to have a chat with you, Christina. Have a great day. Thanks, Happy Ruby. International Women's Day. Thank you. You too. Hi, and welcome back to Tune FM's Radio Takeover by the Feminist Reading Group. I'm Christina from Sociology here at UNE. And um, on the phone with me now is uh, Steph Lum from Intersex Human Rights Australia. Thanks for speaking with us today, Steph. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Um, So the whole point of the takeover is to um, make space for um, people and communities and voices that we, well, that I and the Feminist Reading Group feel like we need to hear a lot more about and from. Um, So I was wondering if you might be able to start by telling us a bit about Intersex Human Rights Australia and the kind of work that you're doing there. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Intersex Human Rights Australia, or EORA, is a national intersex organisation that basically advocates for the bodily autonomy of intersex people. So um, we advocate for self-determination. You know, like, to be clear, we don't think that intersex people should never have medical interventions, but we advocate for people making informed choices over their own bodies. And that means having access to information and evidence-based healthcare. So it's really an organisation um, 
yeah, one by and four in six people at a national level. Um, yeah, great. Can you tell us a bit more about what intersex, um, what kind of people make up yes, the intersex community yeah. and how, how that definition has come to be about? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so intersex basically describes um, bodies that are, people born with bodies that are different from what we typically think of as male or female bodies. And so these differences can be um, hormonal or physical or chromosomal and you might not find out about about it at all or you might find out that you have these differences at any point in your life, not necessarily just at birth. So I think there's often this idea that you know intersex people must know that they're different but truth be told that's really not always the case and there is so much natural diversity and there's about 40 intersex variations that we know of and within those variations within them because there is quite a lot of variation just within how these present. Um, and so what this means really is that you have quite a diverse population under this one term, intersex. And the issues that we might all face are, can actually be quite different to each other in terms of health needs and other needs that, that might present. So actually, but there are a lot of. Mm. Sorry, I was just going to say. So that so there actually, it seems like there's a huge diversity within the intersex community about how um, how these variations um, express themselves. And so, if you have, I mean, if your if your mm. variation is is hormonal, perhaps you won't have that. You know, that kind of um, like a um, a physical change, perhaps in a way that someone else in in the same community would. Is that right? So you only discover yeah. intersex at different points. Um, a, a person might only discover that at different points in their life. Is that is that true to say? Or? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So um, some people might find out uh, when they're very young, while others might find out when they're um, reaching puberty and perhaps they don't go through puberty in a typical way. Other people might find out uh, when they're trying to conceive a child later in life. Um, yeah, well, so they can, they can just go chance, through their whole... Really. Um, yeah, they go through their whole childhood and, and adolescence... Um, without realising and then mm. they get to a certain point and they want to have a baby or they want to get married or something and then they realise that um, that their body works in a different way to, to the way they expected or I guess the way that, that other people expected their bodies to work perhaps. It would be a better way to... to well, yeah, that's and that's exactly right. And that can be quite confronting and um, to find that out um, at a late stage in life and then really question perhaps what that what that means because I think there's a lot of assumptions around what intersex is and that maybe it means you're not really a man, you're not really a woman. Um, there's a lot of a lack of education, I think, about what it is. And therefore, when you find out perhaps quite late in life, then it can be quite challenging um, in terms of how you then think about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So your identity, um, I mean, I think a lot of people who are um, who don't live in an intersex body, I think we take so much of our, um, and who also identify um, as, um, as cisgendered. So but I think a lot of those people, um, you know, we, we don't really, we sort of take a lot of our bodies for granted, I guess, and, and a lot of our identity is really bound up in the way that our body functions um, and, and appears and um, the way that our bodies mm. are read by, you know, by institutions and um, the medical profession and our families. So, um, yeah, I think that's true. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm just touching on what you said there about cisgendered is that, a lot of people, particularly if they find out later in life, you know, they're also cisgendered. They might be intersex, but they're also cisgendered because, you know, they've been assigned perhaps female at birth and they've been raised and socialised as women. Um, and so they would then still consider themselves to be to be women. So, 
Oh um, yeah, no, but they of might just have potentially different medical needs um, that come from that. Yeah, yeah well, no, sorry, I w- yeah. No, no, no. It's great. To, it's yeah. great to have this discussion because I think um, uh, I think a lot of people don't really understand what you know. Um, uh, what intersex means and and how people in the intersex community identify. So it's really great to have this conversation about because um, I think I think in um, maybe in queer spaces or in this kind of talk, there's a lot of talk now about um, uh, trans issues, right? So cis has come up. Um, so to be cisgender, um, for those of, for the listeners who who maybe aren't be aware, is um, is to identify with the gender that you're assigned at birth. So um, so for myself, um, I was assigned, um, you know, a girl or wom- woman at birth, and that, that's how I've continued to identify, uh, choose to identify as an adult. Whereas other people might choose to change, um, or you know, might express their their adult identity, their gender identity, in a, in a way that's different from the identity that they're assigned at birth. Um, but intersex people um, experience a series of um, biological variations, which is different to um, a gender identity variation. Is that is that a I just want to make sure that I'm... Yeah, um, no, that's correct. Yeah, representing no, it correctly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I think it's a really important <laughs> distinction that a lot of people, I think, miss because sometimes also in the acronym, you know, LGBTI, um, the I does stand mm. for intersex, but I think that maybe has that has a sort of a fraught history um, and relationship. Yeah, I perhaps. completely agree. Yeah, did you want, did you want to maybe um, talk a little bit about that? Or? Yeah, um, yeah, sure. So I think, yeah, you're right. Um, Intersex is really about embodiment and bodily difference, and um, there is so much diversity within that. And in terms of how intersex people identify, it's really just as diverse as intersex or non-intersex people. You know, intersex people are men, they're women, they're non-binary, they're they're everything as well. Um, so there can be a lot of confusion when we're we're joined with the LGBTI acronym and people not quite understanding the distinctions between those groups, but um, yeah, there are quite distinctive um, issues and yeah, ways of, of of seeing people within those categories. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks so much, Steph. We're just going to throw to a song now um, and we'll be right back with Steph Lum from Inter- uh, Intersex Human Rights Australia. Hi, and we're back with the Tune FM takeover for International Women's Day. I'm Christina from UNE and I'm here talking with Steph Lum who um, who's from Intersex Human Rights Australia and we've been talking about um, what it is what it means to be intersex I guess and the best ways that um, that institutions and communities can support intersex people um, in a respectful way that acknowledges that everyone's body uh, is different. Um, so thanks for speaking with us, Steph, today. We're just going to talk about, I mean, it's International Women's Day and I was wondering, um, I don't know, I was wondering, for me, inter- I'm, I'm, I have to say, I know we've done the radio takeover on International Women's Day, but even for me, I feel um, that sometimes the messaging from, you know, from the UN or from large bureaucracies about women is really narrow. And I was wondering if maybe um, um, intersex women also have views on on the narrowness of International Women's Day as a <laughs> as a rallying point. Yeah, I think I think I'm inclined to agree. I think um, so. I think the theme for this year is is balance for better, and you know, generally it, it's it's a great idea, and obviously I support that idea of greater representation and inclusion of women. Um, but I think one of the drawbacks is that it's not particularly inclusive, and I, I don't think it's deliberately not inclusive, but by not actively talking about what it means to be a woman and who is included in that 
think it does necessarily exclude. And a lot of the imagery with this year has been, you know, women holding out their hands like a balancing scale. Um, and I think that really does reinforce this idea of a binary men on one side, women on the other. And it doesn't openly acknowledge the space for you know, non-binary people and where they fit in. Um, and even though we've discussed how intersex isn't the same thing, that it's not gender, it's about embodiment, um, I think that by not actively being inclusive and saying, you know, yes, when we say women, we also mean trans women, we mean non-binary people, then it can reinforce this idea that women are people who also have a particular body type. So, yes, I think they could be doing more to actively acknowledge these differences and seek to include intersex women. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting points that you make there about, um, about you know, um, about embodiment and, and, you know, developing our gender identity through an embodied experience as much as, um, as, much as other kinds of, I guess, um, cultural or personal experiences we might have that always inform our identities. Um, and also, it's also interesting, I think, you're right. I mean, I, if anyone's, um, if any of our listeners have, have gone online to look at the Balance for Better um, uh, campaign, there are a lot of women uh, holding out their hands, as Steph has said. You know, um, I think it looks like a bit of a shrug, to be honest. But, um, but you know, <laughs> holding, like balancing, you know, like the scales of justice, you know, um, balancing one, you know, one hand, left hand with the right hand. Um, and it does express that kind of, yeah, you're right, that kind of, I didn't think of it like that way before, but that, that kind of um, binary representation of, you know, there are too many men, we need some women. And that kind of, the, the bucket where the women go, you know, I think is... Um, um, is really uncritically mm. expressed in this campaign. Um, and it's also, I think, um, why we need to be talking more about gender and, and perhaps less about Women's Day, you know, that um, that men are also oppressed by the patriarchy and by, you know, the, the, um, uh, the demands of masculinity in, in so many societies. And it might be better to sort of move towards, um, even if we kept, we, even, um, we probably have to keep Women's Day, let's face it, we're not going to change it on the radio, but... Um, but even if we had to keep Women's Day, it would be really great to have um, a more critical conversation with the ways that men are impacted by masculinity as well um, and that we can have a, a better discussion about um, expressing your gender in a way that's respectful uh, – sorry, that, that is respected by your community and, and acknowledged and that you get the services that you need um, within, within yeah, the, your absolutely. sex and gender. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for calling in to talk to us today, Steph. It was really great to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you. You too. My, 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 I'm so bi. I can't stop my wandering oh, eye. Yeah. Hello. Welcome back uh, to... The Takeover. The Takeover. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Hi. You're, <laughs> you're on Hello. the air on Tune FM. Oh, hi, oh, Mythily. So we've had a, a kind of change of shift here at Tune. Um, my name's Jennifer Hamilton, and if you've been listening all day, well done you. Um, I was here at 9 a.m., <laughs> and now I'm back here at 1 p.m. for a section uh, we're calling Love Song Dedications. Um, and I'm here with my colleague, Kate Wright. Do you want to say hi, Kate? Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, Love Song Dedications, though, is coming with a bit of a, a sort of twist. It's um, 
you know, the love song dedication is usually dedicated by someone of um, one gender to someone of the opposite gender. And I guess that is being thrown into question in this particular segment. And also what counts as something worthy of a love song dedication. So um, this is a group called Composting Feminisms and Environmental Humanities, and we're sort of fusing questions of gender and sexuality and power in relation to questions of environment. Um, and so a love song can be dedicated not only to a, a humanoid creature, but to something else in this particular couple of hours that we have going forward. And on the line right now, we have Mythily Mayer. Uh, hi, Mythily. Hi. Hi, Jen. Hi, Kate. Um, and Mythily, would you, I should have actually prepared a wonderful introduction, but I might get you to introduce yourself and also tell us about the song that was just on uh, at the top of this segment. Yeah, awesome. I'd love to. Um, so I'm Mythily. I'm a anthropologist of knowledge production, how knowledge moves and flows, and um, sort of science and technology studies as well. Um, and I chose that first song, Love Thy Will Be Done, by Martika, um, because it is a really nice lesson in sort of what I think is a good feminist ethos in terms of the way that it was written. Um, the lyrics were a prayer that Martika had written down in her little notebook of lyrics. And she'd actually uh, written to Prince when he was already super famous and sort of asked if they could work together, which is the first lesson about asking for things um, and knowing your worth in order to sort of just put yourself out there. Um, and Prince flew her over to Paisley Park and had a look at this little notebook of hers um, and photocopied a few pages, asked if he could keep them for a while. And the lyrics that became Love Thy Will Be Done were part of this prayer that Matika had written. And it's just a really nice lesson in collaboration as well, I think. Um, it was released in 1991 on Martika's album, Martika's Kitchen. And I wanted to dedicate it to um, this ethos that sort of, this ethos that runs through all of these kind of groups that I'm a part of, like the Composting Feminisms Reading Group and the Me Too Anthro Feminist Collective. Um, as well as other sort of activist groups where you sort of put all this work into things and at some point you kind of have to surrender to them and trust that the love that you've put into the changes you're trying to create in the world will see themselves out in some way. Wow. Okay, so when we, we started by hacking the love song dedication, I didn't realize that at the very top of our two hours, it was going to be so beautifully hacked um, in, in a way, you know, of a, of a song with its own kind of amazing um, history. And I, I love that it was a, a love song uh, or a, a request to Prince in particular. Um, but then yeah, <laughs> how that bumped bumped into a sort of uh, trusting the collaborative process dedication. Yeah. Um, so which is very much against yeah. that idea of the singular love object, but actually sort of something far yeah. more collective and communal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. So thank you very much for that dedication. Um, no worries. So, okay, so Mythily came to the composting reading group in Sydney from a position doing anthropology in Melbourne, and I hope you don't mind my saying this, Mythily, but you've always kind of said, no, I'm not sure right. if I fit in this this world <laughs> of, you know, thinking feminist yeah. and environmental concerns together. Um, yeah, and I just wondered, yeah. you know, where you're at with that right now and um, what you think, you know, what your work does in that space. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think part of the reason I felt that way initially was so much because I was suddenly conscious of how little I was thinking about the ecological in my work. Um, because I was working in this, these sort of mostly human and sometimes sort of spiritual world, so relationships composed of mostly human um, worlds. Can you just tell uh, the, people specifically, like in very briefly, what that was, what your PhD was? Yeah, sure. Sure. My PhD was um, an ethnography of the way that people were navigating really diverse sort of genealogies of knowledge to do with medicine and health and what what a condition that looks like a mental illness or a mental affliction means. Like, do you understand that in terms of um, a spiritual affliction or a psychiatric one? Or there's so many ways of understanding sort of things that manifest as trauma or look like trauma in one lens. So I was just looking at how people take all these things together and the way that like the histories of understanding these things kind of act themselves out in these really intimate contemporary kind of exchanges about healthcare. So awesome. and it felt like the ecological was not in in it, if that makes sense. Mm. But 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 <laughs> <laughs> um where I've come to from kind of coming to composting feminism so regularly is that first of all there's the ethos of feminist environmental humanities that I'm really interested in, which is also very much about sort of questioning um, questioning the ways that our thinking about certain phenomena might be structured into certain compartments and trying to break beyond that, um, which is basically what hacking is, right? Like breaking out of the... The mold, sort of, the, the, mold the structure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, recognizing it in order to break past it. And then also the ethos of sort of recognizing how many things are interconnected when we look at any kind of phenomena, whether it's a social phenomena or, in, you know, what you might call an ecological phenomena, like even to categorize those things as distinct seems sort of not quite right. Yes. So, does that make sense? That's it does. Where I'm it, with. Well, it, I mean, we've spent a, I suppose, in the humanities, in feminist theory, in the arts, we've spent a long time trying to point out how, in Western thinking, the nature culture split is a is a ruse or a trick or not real. That actually yeah. everything in on the earth is of the earth, um, and yeah. we're maybe at a point where that particular act 
act of pointing at that is no longer necessary. There is becoming a, well, in certain places, I guess, like a sense that that (laughs) those two things are together and the environmental crisis and climate change and sea level rise and all these things are really showing the complete interrelation of all these things. Um, But then what does that mean? I mean, who, like, Mm. it means so much. (laughs) It means everything. Yeah. Kate Kate is nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just (laughs) thinking about um, the nature-culture split as a kind of pathology in itself. And when you were talking um, earlier about your PhD on sort of genealogies of knowledge and mental Mm. illness and things, I was thinking about Gregory Bateson and his sort of take on ecologies as... Uh, ecological thinking as a systemic type of thinking which can be applied to so much more than just nature with a big green n um yeah and and about and he he talked about the nature culture split as a as a delusion of the of the western world that is that is getting out of control and is itself a kind of pathology it's quite a colonial delusion which is i guess how it comes into any project that's interested in sort of decolonizing knowledge and decolonizing methods is to sort of take up the the take up that split of nature culture and be like, well, what purposes does this serve? What purposes has this served historically? And it's often served really imperial purposes. Absolutely. You know, like, um. I I just noticed that I know that you're having to head off to a a French class, Mythily. Um, oui, oui. <laughs> and I'm wondering <laughs> if we can sort of sneak in um, another song and then come back to you for a couple of final comments before you have to go to that class. And I believe that maybe Come On Home is the one that is... Come On Home. It's actually Devil Spoke, but I can find Come On Home. Oh, right. Oh, no, that was... The Devil Spoke... I, what about... Oh yeah, Actually, are we gonna we're gonna Google can... while while live on yes. air. Let's let's Quickly. do this. Um, what uh, what, what song, like? Mayfully? Do you have him to her? Because that was the other one that you said was on your him to her on your list. The Pretenders by the Pretend. I'm sure we do. <laughs> oh sorry, I thought that was one you said you had. It was no, we've the the lists are all over the place. Um, we yes. we have like oh, seven right. different okay. lists. <laughs> yes. Oh no, we can we can go with the other one. No, love they will be done. This is a collective effort. <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's him to her. Is yeah, that, that's right. Uh, by the Pretenders. Yeah. Ho ho. Okay. Ho-ho. <laughs> Any chance that Ho-ho. you can fit in these comments while I look at look it all up? <laughs> Sorry. Hi, sure. <laughs> um. Yes. I I can only type as fast as my little fingers can manage. <laughs> but I really want to find this song for you. Um, well, Do you yeah. want me to shall I, shall uh, I introduce yep. it? Yeah, introduce the song. There we go. Yeah. I, I've got it and I'm ready to go. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Shall I, shall I still introduce it? Yes, or? please. All right. Um, so this is, is by The Pretenders. Um, from a 1986 album called Get Close, and it was actually written by a high school friend of Chrissy Hines, the lead singer. Um, this high school friend was named Meg Keane. Um, I I just love this song. It's, there's something about it that's like, it's about like an enduring love. There's something, something about the eternal feminine in it. There's all the stuff about the maiden, the mother, and the crone. 
I'll be your lover from the womb to the tomb. I'll dress as your daughter when the moon becomes round. Like, it, when I listen to it, it's almost like I imagine these sort of dark corridors, but they're not scary. They're really alluring and lovely. And the song feels like it's about, like, the mysterious and the unknown that draws you to something or someone that you love, Aww. where you love them heap, but there's so much about them that you don't know. So... I mean, it could be a dedication to anyone, really, but today I'm probably going to dedicate it to my mum. Yeah. Part <laughs> because I talk about mum and how she and I have very different sort of connections to place um, because of being migrants and what that history means for each of us as being like first generation and 1.5 generation. Um, so we kind of have these very different relationships to the places we call home, oh. even though we're connected to each other. That's um, a really great sort of way, I think, of um, segueing into, I guess, the song, but also just um, what we will do following this Composting Feminism's Love Song Dedications Hour t- or Two is <laughs> put um, some links up online. And, I mean, that particular paper I know isn't published yet, Mythily. It's under review at yeah. the moment. But for people who are listening <laughs> in and interested in our activities, um, there'll be ways of sort of staying in touch with our work. And if you do want to read about uh, Mythily's sort of amazing um, analysis of this, the different generational migrant um, relations to place, um, it will be out in due course. Um, so, Mythali, I think it's probably almost time for your French class. Um, and that was such a beautiful dedication that maybe we'll play that and I'll, we can release you from your, um, your, your phone call um, at this point. So thanks for, for calling in. Oh, or for, thank you so much. And for sharing those thoughts um, and these beautiful songs and, and uh, Bonsoir, bonjour. <laughs> Salut. I don't know. Au revoir. Salut. Yeah. <laughs> there we are. Au revoir. Thank you so much for having me. This was so nice. This was really beautiful. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Bye. I'll tune in after lesson. Yeah, right. I do. All right. <laughs> to Marceline's mum, we have Him to Her by The Pretenders. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Let me inside you into your room. I've heard it's lined with the things you don't show. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM back with the takeover. Thanks so much. Welcome back. That request or uh, love song dedication was actually from Francesca Salhut uh, from events here at UNE. And Fran, uh, dedicated three songs but this was the third one that she dedicated to the future and in brackets she put all of this can be broken and what I really sort of like about the enigmaticness of that phrase or the enigma of that phrase is that it's sort of like the future can be a train wreck or all of the present can be broken to create a different future so we have this sort of ambivalence there in that song which I think is kind of captured in the tone and the key and its intensity so thank you so much Fran Um, and hopefully you enjoyed my interpretation of your love song dedication even though we don't have you online so my name's Jennifer Hamilton and I'm here with uh, 
Kate Wright. Kate Wright uh, on the Love Song Dedications Two Hours. Uh, and on the line we have Dr. Estrida Namanis from the University of Sydney. Estrida, are you with us? Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Kate. Hello. Um, welcome to the line. And I, we had... Um, we have Mythily first, but I guess this particular two-hour slot is part of a bigger project called Composting Feminisms and Environmental Humanities, and that's something that, Estrita, you and I just uh, sort of inaugurated when I was at UCID. And um, I guess mm. I wanted to ask, what led you to sort of wanting to bring feminism into the environmental humanities? Oh, um, that's not the question I expected, but I like that you're making me think on my toes. Sorry. <laughs> I, I know it's great. It's such the most important question. Um, cause it, well, there are so many answers. I mean, one of them is that you and I sat around one day and said, we need to have a reading group that <laughs> creates the space that we crave and need and want and think is necessary. Right. So part of the, um, what made us want to do that was, a feeling in both of our works, and, and, and we've talked about this before, um, about the way that feminism has always informed our work. Well, maybe not always, that's an exaggeration, but has informed our work for a long time. But as we both moved into increasingly environmental spaces of scholarship, how that feminism was sort of um, sidestepped, either because we were asked by the people who were reading our work not to bring it front and center or we for some reason ourselves thought that um, it shouldn't have pride of place or you know for a myriad of other reasons including you know misogyny in the academy and the risks of outing yourself as a feminist in non-feminist spaces and you know all of these other sorts of things so the reading group really came about when we said we really want to think these things together both as an institutional practice where we can sort of claim our feminism really strongly and, and sort of openly, um, but also as a, a scholarly practice where we think a lot about how feminist thinking, and I mean feminism very broadly, you know, intersectional feminisms, including, you know, uh, projects committed also to anti-colonialism and to racial justice and to, you know, crypt futures and queer futures, how all of this has really been integral to thinking questions about environment and our relationship to the environment, even when that hasn't been acknowledged maybe upfront. Yeah, I, thank you for that answer. I think one of the things that I thought as soon as I asked the question was, oh my gosh, I asked a question that kind of undercut the argument we make in the paper, Composting Envi uh, Feminisms mm -hmm. and Environmental Humanities, which is feminism has never been sort of separate from the environmental humanities, but it has mm -hmm. been, as you said in that, um, that answer sideline or marginalized for whatever reason. Um, and so also bringing that substrate back out and back to the mm -hmm. front is part of this this project and this discussion um, today. Um, so yes, thank you for thinking on your feet in relation to um, to my sort of uh, my question that came in from a little left of field. Um, so the follow on from that question though is what is your research and contribution to this space um, either in the past um, or, or today, wherever you want to take that question? Mm -hmm. um, well, I, I write and I research and I think a lot about water. You know, water is my area of study. 
And uh, I find it quite interesting that I, I came to that question really from within feminist theory, thinking about ourselves as bodies of water, um, which a lot of feminist thinking has contributed to, and how as soon as I started to think about my own body and the bodies of other bodies <laughs> as bodies of water, I was automatically pulled into an environmental space. And I started thinking about the connections between um, you know, humans and more than human bodies of water, what we pass on to each other, the sorts of hydrological systems that we you know, all contribute to, and therefore, um, you know, questions of pollution or contamination all become really salient across human and more than human bodies. And, and that nature-culture split that you were talking about with Maitali and Kate just becomes completely, uh, you know, gets thrown out the window because water as a conduit and as a medium of communication is already showing us that the human is in a really material way completely connected to its environment. And I think it's probably obvious how that has a particular feminist and gender-related um, aspect to it as well when we think about um, everything from gestation to the sort of watery and leaky bodies of lactating parents or um, menstruating bodies or um, other ways in which a sort of water body has been, has been feminized. Yeah, I mean, it is possible um, to take those questions up without attending to the environmental. And I know, like, in the book that you edited five years ago now, six mm. years ago, Janine McLeod wrote about the way that water metaphors operate sort of so readily in our society. Um, you know, like we have all of these, particularly with with regards to the economy, like things like the flow mm. of money and, um, you know, that's the only one that has come straight to mind. Or, or you know, like being, you know, liquid assets and, um, you know, trickle down benefits and these sorts of things, right? Yeah. Um, so aside from, I guess, the, the you know, the feminist sort of, the all of the kind of literal metaphors that, that mm. sit within the body, what does sort of like an ecological perspective do to to that type of language that is obviously mm. I guess drawing on water but um, but maybe not in in a watery way yeah I mean I guess one really easy way to answer that or sort of simple way to answer that is to say well we take this metaphorical um, power from water but what do we give back to it you know like mm. um it's not a it's not a there? fair Sorry, exchange yeah no we are still there we are still here okay my phone was buzzing yeah um right so it's not so it's not a fair exchange right and so that's why that that book you're actually referring to is called thinking with water you know so if we want to use water in our language or in our scholarship how can we switch that re relationship away from an extractive one where we are drawing from water's power or literally, you know, drawing water as a resource to create our computers and um, bring us to work and all of the other ways in which water literally um, irrigates our lives, makes them livable and possible. So instead of just extracting from water to be scholars and thinkers, what are we giving back to water? You know, how do we care for it in return? How do we enable it to fulfill its obligations to us? How do we try to ensure that, you know, um, the bodies of water from which we draw also are replenished and restored and able to sort of continue their, their being in the world, you know, it strikes, in, in good ways. 
It strikes me that those economic metaphors or uses of water, which are very extractive, um, are an erasure of water's presence. And, and while there's, there's an attention to water, it's such a, it's not an embodied attention. That's what I get from that, that there's no real sure. becoming with a river or becoming with a, you know, being porous or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we could think about, you know, the Australian feminist philosopher Val Plumwood's work there really directly and how she talked about the ways in which in the master model of binary oppositions of which, you know, male and female and nature and culture are two of the primary ones, you know, how what one of the effects of that is the way one side of that that binary, like the female or the the colonized or um, or the natural, becomes backgrounded, so that we don't even notice it anymore. We don't notice the ways in which it, we are utterly dependent on it and utterly, um, you know, uh, integrated with it in the way we live our lives. Mm-hmm. So that backgrounding is something that my in my work, I guess, I'm trying to counter and bring water up to the front and out of the background and say what does it mean to sort of embody this water in a very conscious way and 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 then we sort of can come to the question of how we care for it in return as well and um thank you one way of doing that i guess is through swimming um now this is Mm. a a segue to uh, a song that you have requested by the great lake swimmers (laughs) yes Um, so um the great lake uh, Want me to introduce that? Yeah, please go for it. Um, okay, so I have to say I was really fraught about this choice because it is International Women's Day and this is a band um, of white blokes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I can't choose this song, but I have to choose this song. It's called Your Rocky Spine by the Great Lakes Swimmers, which are the waters that grew me up in Turtle Island or Canada. And the the song itself is a love song, um, and although the lyrics might suggest it's it's to a, a human body, it's actually a song written for the Niagara Escarpment, which is the 750 kilometer long rocky spine that is the the geological substrate of the Great Lakes system where I grew up. So um, I'd like to dedicate this song, and I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong. But I'd like to dedicate the song to Aniatari Io, which is the um, Haudenosaunee way of saying Lake Ontario, and specifically um, to Tsi Kanatakeras, which is also the Haudenosaunee way of saying Hamilton, Ontario, which is my hometown on the Great Lakes. And I think it's really funny that that Haudenosaunee word uh, directly translates to um, where the town smells. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I live in a very, uh, rather, I, I grew up in a very um, industrialized place. Um, the water was not beautiful. The water was and is not swimmable. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not, you know, in my bones and traveling up and down my own rocky spine. So that's the song I want to I wanna dedicate today. Well, thank you. We'll come back to you after the song, but yeah. Um, no worries. Okay. Uh, this is Your Rocky Spine by the Great Lakes Swimmers. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. <laughs> we were talking. We're back. We were talk. We were just distracted. <laughs> momentarily but that was you were just lulled 
Yeah. Lulled by that beautiful music. <laughs> yeah, that, that is exactly what happened, actually. Uh, that was Your Rocky Spine by the Great Lakes Swimmers. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM. Back on with the takeover. Yes, the International Women's Day takeover by the UNE Feminist Reading Group. And these two hours between one and three, uh, myself, Jennifer Hamilton and Kate Wright, uh, love song dedications, but not of any kind. They're ecologically geared uh, love song dedications. And we have on the line from Sydney, Australia, not Sydney, Canada, um, <laughs> Australian Amonis, mm. uh, talking about her work in feminist environmental humanities. And Estrita, thank you for that dedication and for framing it for us before the song. Um, I wanted to ask you where your work is headed now. So you've spent quite a while working on water and obviously you can't leave that watery self behind, but uh, um, where are you taking your your investigations mm. into this, this world of ours? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my, my sort of last book was quite, you know, broadly thinking about water and water imaginaries and, and watery embodiment as a, as a sort of idea. Now, I'll just interrupt to say it's called idea. Bodies of Water. Sure. It's called um, Bodies of yeah, Water and it's, um, and it's, and we will, when we podcast this, make the, the link to the open access version available so people can read it as well. Great. Great. I would love that. Um, and I, I'm working on another book right now, and I, I couldn't think of the name for it for a long time. And then our friend, our mutual composting friend, Lindsay Kelly, actually gave me a suggestion a while ago um, that I should call it Feelings of Water. And um, or a feeling, the feeling of water. I'm not sure yet, but uh, I think that's what it's going to be. And it's really looking at more specific bodies of water, including um, one that was referenced in the song we just heard, uh, Lake Ontario and, and, and the water that grew me up in Winter, Windermere Basin. And I'm trying to think through um, what specific bodies of water hold, um, what kind of memories they hold, what kind of feelings they hold, what kind of material artifacts and afterlives they hold. Um, and I'm trying to think a lot more deliberately uh, alongside um, black feminist thought and indigenous feminist thought, um, you know, and, and, and trying to really carefully um, not appropriate those ideas and instead think about what I'm learning from them and how they can sort of force me to think in different ways. So so a chapter I'm writing right now specifically for this, this project you and I are working on together, Jen, on feminist environmental humanities is working with... Um, uh, Christina Sharp's work on the weather as anti-blackness and trying to imagine what the weather underwater is like and um, and thinking about that both as an ecological question of how climate change manifests underwater and in the oceans but also about um, the memories of those same waters in terms of the transatlantic slavery in terms of other kinds of bodies and histories, colonial histories, imperial histories, that means, uh, that rather uh, indicate that the ocean floors are littered not only with, you know, car tires and plastic bags and spam cans, but, um, but deep histories and, and uh, uh, bodies of all kinds. And thinking also about the song that you played before I came on about the future, you know, um, I've been thinking a lot with the work of Alexis Pauline Gums, a, a poet from the U.S., who thinks about what the future underwater might hold and that that might not only be 
um, a tragic or an apocalyptic thing, but that new things might be growing under the sea. And that's an idea that I've really been drawn to. Wow, that's amazing. I was thinking when you were speaking about how my engagements with your work on water have specifically led me to thinking about drains and externalizations and that, you know, Mm. the, the what you and Kate were speaking about before the song about moving between the sort of metaphoric and the literal figurations that that externalization is the literal sort of waste of what happens when you turn water into an immaterial thing to think um you know in yeah. the abstract and you you kind of left with all of yeah. this this remainder which isn't isn't um hasn't gone anywhere like is still very present in the world but is sort of a waste of our imaginations and it is sort of about really kind of being able to swim Mm. in all of that mess and it's kind of nice that you have both like an engagement with the toxic side of it but then through gums coming back to some maybe livability within within it all yeah Because I guess, you know, your work on drains, Jen, you know, is also pointing to the fact that, you know, there is no outside. Like as soon as we start thinking with water, you know, it just reminds us there's no, like when something goes down the drain, it goes somewhere. There is no elsewhere. There is no other. There is no beyond or outside or after. It's all here and we're all in it. So, you know, thinking about how to live in that and with that ethically and more consciously and more carefully um it's a big question but it's like it's the only one really worth answering right now how yeah do we keep on keeping on how do we and i just before we throw to your um your second uh, love song dedication i wanted to ask why do you to just kind of fold that back into the question of of feminism mm-hmm. and international women's day what is it specifically about feminist mm-hmm. thought that enables that um that Mm-hmm. that thinking for you yeah I, I mean there's so many answers to that but the one I'll, I'll give us now is um, drawn from our colleague Stacey Alimo who says you know as women or otherly gendered bodies you know non-masculine bodies we're very used to being the other <laughs> being the remainder being the drain and so it, it gives us a very um, strong perspective from which to think about other kinds of others and other kinds of elsewheres and other kinds of backgrounded matter. And so um, it's that sort of uh, living what you're thinking as not an abstracted God's eye view, but as being right in the mud, you know, right in the, the dirt and the shit and the, the water of it, you know, that I think feminism uh, is really good at doing. Oh, thank you. Um, so, your second dedication, Estrida, before we say goodbye. Oh, yeah. So, this is a, another uh, singer from Turtle Island from Canada. Her name is Hannah Georges, and she also grew up not far from where I grew up, although she now lives in, um, in BC. Uh, the song is actually a Rihanna cover, <laughs> which kind of embarrasses me, but I, I love this song. Um, and because it's it's a cover you know i think that's what draws me i love covers i love the way that we um take things that other people have written or made and we make them our own we inherit we inherit from what comes before us we inherit the future and what comes after us we inherit across things um and so i i thought of this song as a really um, beautiful love song to the idea of inheritance and change and transformation and i'd like to i think dedicate it to um 
which is kind of corny, but I'd like to dedicate it to my kids um, who, for better or worse, inherit all this mess that I am. <laughs> and I hope we can transform in ways that will be, you know, fulfilling and fulfilling and sustainable to them. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> Thank all you, right. Mm. So this is... All right. <laughs> this is a cover of Rihanna's Stay by Hannah Georges. You're listening to 106.9 Tune FM.